0: All right, Mr. Mark Jacobs, director, producer, cinematographer, f- over 40 years in the film industry, sir. Is that correct? You calling me, sir?
1: <laughs> I guess so, 40 years, yeah. No, wow. yeah. Yeah, uh, a little bit longer, but. Um, yeah, it's been a heck of a career, for sure. Started as a journalist.
0: Yeah, a television journalist. Yeah. What Did you come out of college and were in a journalism degree, or how did that come about? So, um,
1: no degree, no college. Started when I was 14. Oh, my goodness. Hanging out at Howard Hughes' old TV station in Las Vegas, KLAS TV. And wow. Called them up and said, hey, I want to take a tour of your station. And they said, oh, come on down, and came in and just practice what my dad always taught me my dad was uh um, connected to the mob for a while with rosenthal and all those guys uh that ran the stardust and, ace
0: rosenthal who yeah. casino is based on
1: yeah my dad was the technical advisor for casino oh my and gosh i'm in casino uh because really I, yeah because when i when i started at 14 i was studio camera but on the weekends i would do news photography so they didn't have anybody on staff to shoot news. So when anything happened in Vegas, like if it snowed, which it, which is a big deal there, or a fire or any kind of um, crime, they'd always ask me to go. I didn't even have a driver's license. They'd just throw me the keys to the van. But because I hung out, out. all summer with the other photojournalists that were former guys from Vietnam, they were film shooters in Vietnam, and that they taught me, basically took me under their wing. And I would always practice what my, my dad said, and he had this mob saying dummy up which basically is eyes open ears open mouth shut and so I just kept that philosophy going And the next thing you know I just found myself with a camera on my shoulder shooting film hundred-foot mags and bringing them back and having to shoot in camera a sequence so there was no time to cut yeah so you basically had hundred-foot mag two and a half minutes to shoot in order of a story So at a very young age, I learned how to sequence life, basically, and anticipate human action. And then I went in the Army, and then went back to Vegas, and went to the NBC affiliate. Was their youngest, I think the youngest ever chief photographer in Vegas, and was there for a few years, and went back to
0: KLS. Because you had the knowledge that you just learned on your own. I mean, there's it's not YouTube just, videos just, back then, so you're just kind of trial and error and figured this stuff yeah. out, or had an advisor. Or. I
1: don't even think there was trial and error. You know, it's just people mentored me. You know, I just you know in the studio, I would sit for hours and just play with the studio cameras and pet up and pet down and track and dolly. And, and then um, when they built the new facility, Sumacorp, who was um, Howard Hughes' corporation that built Summerlin and everything that now exists that was a okay. whole pre-planned community. Um, He built KLAS, and he built it so he could watch movies late at night when he was a recluse in the top of the Desert Inn Hotel. Unbelievable. And so that's the only reason he had a TV station, was so he could watch his old movies. Well, that (laughs) turned into the number one news facility in the whole state of Nevada eventually. And so I called him up and talked to this guy, Fred Lewis, who was the old uh, anchor. I said, I want to take a tour. And so I came down, I got to meet everybody. And that was the time when, you know, if you – you remember the movie Anchorman? Of course. So that existed at that time in Vegas. You had the bushy mustaches. Chuck Russell, who was a weather guy, he cut all the news pieces. Bosots, voiceovers, packages. And he was the weather guy. And so they had this old cabinet made out of wood, basically just you know plywood. And they had these huge three-quarter-inch pneumatic machines and a little controller in between them. And he'd sit with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. Just smoking away in the in the newsroom and everybody's typing on typewriters and ripping copy off the UPI and the AP press machines and he's sitting there editing everything just super fast. And so he and I, he really kinda mentored me a lot. I think he was more interested in my mom. My mom was a showgirl and dancer and <laughs> oh stuff. So gosh. he was really like into getting to know her. So he would he would literally take me back to my house on the way home. I'd walk there from my house a couple miles. And spend all day and night during my summer break from school doing that. And then when I went back to school at the age of 15, um, they kicked me out. They said, you can't hang out. We're going to a new building, but fill this out. And I said, what's this? They go, it's a job application. We want you to run studio camera on the weekends while you're in school. Oh, my God. And so now at the age of 15, I'm running a studio camera for the newscast and commercials and community affairs stuff at Howard Hughes' old station, a brand new station now. New facility, new equipment, new newsroom, new stu- huge studios. Massive, still the biggest there. Where is it in Vegas? It's right, there's an old, um, if you know where the Encore is. Yeah, Stay there So between, time. across the street from the old Stardust Hotel, mm-hmm. there was a huge, it's still there, huge Catholic Church. Behind the... It's right behind the Catholic yeah. Church. At that time, it was right next to the Catholic Church. And they tore that building
0: down, and then they built the new facility behind it. What year is this, roughly? 1970-something? <laughs> 1978. So, I mean, he's probably cutting on that flatbed with a glass of scotch and everything. It wasn't a so flatbed.
1: It was three-quarter inch. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah no, no. When I started, they were just transitioning out of film. So we literally come back, put it in processing, and they put it upon a film train chain, and then that would project the image into a small camera, and then that would take it on, on air, and we would just, you know shoot news and that yeah, was crazy a little airy
0: that's 16 so million. amazing is this so when was a uh, lefty rosenthal ace uh, ace rostein was his character in a casino but um what was was that this time period it's 1978 to 80 kind yeah, of
1: yeah so the interesting thing was my dad and mom were divorced and uh it was that year when i started hanging out at the tv station i think that was part of the motivation for me was just to get away you know because they were divorcing same year that he told me he was legally adopting me and giving me the Jacob's name and um, so that was pretty heavy I think for a 14 year old that I was you know yeah, and um, so during that time he would pick me up on the weekends and we'd go to the old Las Vegas Convention Center and see the Rebels play and we'd go to lunch and we went to lunch at this place called Piero's which is a very famous place now there's actually a lot of scenes were shot there for the film Casino. And we'd go to lunch with Fat Herbie Blitzstein and we'd go to lunch with Spilatro or we'd go to Sprodington's place at Las Vegas Country Club and drop off a birthday gift or whatever. And he'd always tell me, dummy up, you know, just sit and listen. Shut the fuck up. So man. I was observing. And when I started getting into news and then the fall of the Stardust happened and FBI came in and raided it for skimming and just basically the whole fall, my dad was running the Fremont Hotel, which was basically called a clean up front hotel. So he ran it on the up and up. So there was no skimming, there was nothing. Great business guy, great casino manager. And so he turned it into a profit-making casino in downtown Vegas on Fremont. Mm -hmm. And then the Stardust was doing all the wrong stuff. Well, because of my connection, my dad was Jewish, and -hmm. he was my second dad, actually. Um, He basically was the money guy. And the mob utilized a lot of um, Jewish people in that, that world, if you will, is the money guys. And they would make money. They, they knew how to keep accounting and all that kind of stuff. And so my dad had that going for him. And then when it all fell down, it just uh, I ended up covering what my dad was going through and then all the people, like the argument with, at that time, Harry Reid and Rosenthal at the Game and Control Board. Um, my dad's in the background in the original footage, and there's actually people playing my dad and his cousin, Murray Ehrenberg. And so I'm covering that same thing, and there's my dad, and I've got a news camera, so I'm shooting my dad. At, it was just weird. It was bizarre. Is so that in the courtroom circle. scene? Yeah, well, it's not a courtroom scene. It was actually the gaming control yeah. board. He was going to keep him out of the black book. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. And Do you was, have all this footage still? No, it's all in the archives at Channel 8. Okay. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, so, uh, real quick, Tony Spilatro, who Joe Pesci played in Casino, um, who was actually murdered in a cornfield right where I grew up, uh, outside Chicago, in Enos, Indiana. You had been around him and seen him, and was he just a businessman in then and didn't really, I mean, he's not whacking people in front of you, but what was something you could... When I
1: first met him, it was before the Hole in the Wall gang did Bertha's and Christensen's jewelry store. Um, which is portrayed in the film yeah hole in the wall very small no, uh, that was the name of the gang it was the hole in the wall gang because they would blast the hole in the wall to get into yeah. these jewelry stores um, I knew of him but I was a kid and then as I got into news when I got back out of the army that's when everything kind of fell the early 80s like 81, 82 uh-huh. um, <clears throat> I just ended up backpetting on Tony and, and Oscar Goodman who later became the mayor yeah. um, his attorney um, every day On the way into federal court, out of federal court to lunch, back from lunch, and then at the end of the day out because we knew there was a hit on Tony's head. And so they wanted somebody always there. So we all took turns of who was going to go to the courthouse and shoot him walking in and out in case something happened. That's how morbid news is. And um, nothing happened, thank goodness. I think I may have been
0: injured. Eventually did.
1: (laughs) But I learned how to backped down steps really well without falling over. So if you see in the film when he says, hey, watch it, watch it, don't, you know. Oh yeah, I know exactly. That's actually in real life, that was me. He was saying that too. So and be and polite, we were actually going downstairs backwards. Incredible. Yeah, so. I gotta watch
0: that when I get home tonight now.
1: <laughs> oh wow, I just yeah. have so
0: many questions about that. But.
1: As and I, I was actually in Chicago. We were searching um, old junkyards, automobile junkyards. And WMAQ, who at that time, when we were there, the NBC affiliate in Chicago, was in that huge mall in downtown Chicago before they built Water Tower new, Place? I think so. It was a massive, like, structure yeah, it's right on the Yeah, Water the Tower, river. Michigan, yeah. And we worked out of there. Or Merchandise Mart, too. I think it was Merchandise. And um, that's where their headquarters were. They're in NBC and owned, owned, the owned, owned and operated, yeah. Oh. And so we would go in, and we left from there to go and search with the cops, looking for the for Tony and his brother. Because they knew he was dead. They found his car. At the, I think it was at a motel or something in the parking lot, Old Seville, and they knew that he had been taken and killed, but they didn't, they couldn't find the bodies. And so then we left. This was when I was at Channel Three, and so when we left and got back to Vegas, it was about a week later they found him in the
0: cornfield. Incredible. Yeah. And it, what, was he really beaten by? Oh yeah, everything that happened okay. in the film
1: is basically, I mean, him and his brother. And it's the evidence that led to what Scorsese portrayed in the film.
0: And the author behind all this, Nicholas Pleggi yeah, yeah. and he was from Vegas as well? Or yeah. is, okay, yeah. OK. So he had known about Journalist. all this. And yeah. uh, that's incredible. I gotta, we got to talk about that another time, because I've got <laughs> literally 200 questions. <laughs> what's the restaurant where uh, Sharon Stone walks in? And has d- Piero's. And that's on the Fremont. And Piero
1: was my babysitter when we were in the Bahamas. My dad ran casinos at Paradise Island in, in the Bahama Islands, and we lived there for a number of years. And Piero, and my dad, were like best friends, and he used to babysit me. And then he opened up Piero's <laughs> in Vegas, and that whole circle of friends—that was their hangout. That was where they went and had dinners.
0: Is this just gave you incredible ideas to write about later in life? And I have had so
1: many people tell me to write a book, and I just have not slowed down enough to really think about it. Even now, I'm incredibly busy. So it's yeah. been—it's been crazy.
0: Well, you still got tons of years. Look, great still, shape. I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> Uh, you live down here in the South Bay with me. It's the best, isn't it? It is. I love truly it. It truly is. You're a bike rider? Yeah. Um, road bike?
1: Road bike. Not as much lately.
0: You get on like a hybrid or mountain bike and cruise nope. around? or No. Nope. Strictly road when you do, though? Oh,
1: yeah. I was riding for Big Orange for a while.
0: So, TV journalism, you're in Las Vegas. You get into your 20s then, and you're still in Vegas? When do you make the move to L.A.? Um, I stayed in Vegas till about
1: 1995. Okay. And then I went to... Um, Arizona. I worked at ABC in Phoenix. As a cam op or producer? As a photojournalist, we, we okay. were doing things at this station that hadn't been done in television news. Uh, we called it No Chit Chat, uh, More News. And so it was less crosstalk between the anchors. It was really just delivering news stories in a very cinematic, fast, retina damaging, you know, as far as the pacing and editing, and doing things very creative, mm-hmm. um, like going to a store and buying an aquarium and putting our ikigami in it and doing a underwater story about somebody that dives for golf balls in a golf course (laughs) um so just doing fun stories and i think that just really gave me like a second breath of life and news and i always wanted to end up in san diego and um so i ended up in san diego and uh, went back to vegas for a little bit worked for encore productions as their on staff director and producer and did a lot of IBM commercials and Hewlett Packard and all these different big computer industries for Comdex, the com- convention that's there in Vegas. Uh-huh. And then I was, I just, it was too slow of a pace for me. I'm really like, I like chasing fire trucks and a- ambulances back then. And so I just loved the news and it was just an adrenaline rush for me. And yeah. um, so I went back in, except this time I went back to Vegas. I mean, back to uh, San Diego yeah, from Vegas. And I worked there at the ABC as an editor and the chief photographer who was a guy that shot some of the Beatles visits, first visits to the states in California he said to me one day, I'm going on vacation do you know how to shoot? And I was like yeah sure I can shoot. Of course I had already been had like multiple awards and stuff and I just wanted to keep it quiet. I just didn't want to like press too hard and so I used his gear while he was taking a vacation you know a week off and driving his car and It's a brand new tripod in the back seat. and The reporters were all nervous because they didn't know if I knew how to shoot. So Kyung Law, who now works for CNN, she was the first reporter. And I pulled the tripod out to use it because I I just love shooting long lens stuff. And she's like, where'd that come from? I go, it was behind the seat. He never uses that tripod. I go, really? And I pulled out lights. He never uses lights. He just shoots, you know, walks around. And I was like, okay, well, that's his thing, you know. And so I started doing stories. And then the next thing you know, a lot of the reporters wanted to work with me. They wanted to go out and um, shoot packages. And I always like to dialogue. Because a vehicle, when you're in the vehicle with a reporter, um, not only is it kind of like the psychiatrist's couch, because you hear all their love stories and all the issues that they're going through. Yeah. On-camera people just are a little different breed. And uh, so you just listen a lot. And then when it comes to the story, you discuss the story. And it always changes. But by the time you get back, it was always on my heart to make sure that I understood exactly what the expectation was from their point of view. And then also they understood what I was going to bring to it. And then we'd come together and meet with a finished product. And hopefully it was going to be good. And so the majority of the time, a lot of the stuff that I was doing news package wise um, was really welcomed. And I had a guy at Fox um, was building a brand new station, brand new building um, at an old station there, XCTV that was owned by Televisa out of um, Mexico City. And Televisa is a huge conglomerate in broadcast. They have like thousands of stations around the country, multiple um, languages. Um, and they basically hired this guy, Alberto Pando, to build this news facility. And he called me up one day and he's like, hey, man, I've been watching your stuff. Can we have dinner? And so we went and had dinner. And um, the name Mark Jacobs, by the way, helps when you're making reservations. Uh, At least it did then. It doesn't too much anymore. Well, and so he was impressed by that, which I was like, okay, whatever. Um, and he said, I want you to come work for me. I want you to help me run this place. And so I came in as the chief photographer, chief editor, which pretty much I'd done most of my career in news. Mm-hmm. And one thing led to another, I ended up being news director and executive producer of it <laughs> in two thousand four. Um, had already gotten married in O one and um my wife is a teacher. She was at that time an assignment desk manager, so she basically told me what to go and cover and when.
0: Oh wow, that's nice. And then
1: um when I got promoted to news director I kept my gear, so I kept shooting. And that was during that time I met Jesse and uh so in 04, I just kept shooting Jesse, and I came up here, and the first show out of the gate was Breaking Bonaducci and then the second show was Robin Big, and the rest is history.
0: I want to get to that. So when you're getting these gigs, I mean, you're just fully prepared. you got a resume, and people know that you know what you're doing. Is that how you're getting this work all the time, or you're just yeah. kind of seeking it out, being in the right place at the right time? And um, obviously you took over for that guy that was on vacation on some packages and started. Yeah. the reporters wanted to work with you because yeah. you were a little better prepared and did things differently?
1: I just did things differently. You know, it's like I've never seen... The one thing I I couldn't stand was 4-3 aspect ratio. (laughs) I just, I I do not like the square box. I don't like looking at the world in a square box. And that was really frustrating for me when I was shooting news and there was no 16.9, there was no HD. You know, we're shooting on three-quarter inch tape with hundreds of pounds of gear walking around and wooden sticks and stuff. And So for me, it was like I would get back to the station and I would cut a piece and then I would always shoot a little wider or I'd put black electrical tape over the viewfinder over the monitor in the viewfinder so that it was in a, you know, like 235 aspect ratio. And I would shoot everything that way and then I'd come back and I'd go into the control room and I'd pull a buddy of mine who I befriended and, and, you know, just hung out with and I'd say, hey, would you just mask, you know, just put a mask over the video? And it had already been shot wide which is basically Cinema Technique, and I didn't know it at that time, and I started airing packages in Letterbox, and people were like, whoa, that's crazy, that's like a movie, but it's real, it's like a documentary, And then when the internet started happening and computers started happening, like 98, 97, 96, 98, um, I started taking lipstick cameras and sticking them on the end of a light stand, taping the light stand to the top of a tripod, a fluid head tripod, and then floating the camera through the inside of a computer or over the keyboards, and just doing funny stuff like that, and then typing on a keyboard. So I would get my wife, actually, I'd say, would you come in the conference room? It would be all dark, just the lights were on, and I'd just have her tap on the keys, but on every tap of the key would be a cut. So it would be like these 10-frame, 15-frame, 20-frame cuts to help build energy in a story, especially if it was about the Internet.
0: Hold up. We are very lucky to have this podcast sponsored by Neat Microphones. That's right. Neat. Not dirty. Neat. Their cutting-edge design and technology is the perfect affordable mic for studio recording, for podcasting. I even have one on my desktop right now to do Zoom meetings with. They're incredibly inexpensive. Go to neatmics.com. Pick one up. You won't be sorry. Now back to Mark Jacobs telling us about how he pays it forward in today's climate. Thank you. And is that you know you're not offering too much right? At the yeah, because I don't want to feeling off, it out.
1: Well, I don't want to come off boasting, bragging, or anything yeah. like that. I love sharing the experiences I've had because I hope that people benefit from that. And if they feel inspired to ask a question, I hope that I can answer that question and offer some knowledge. Um, I recently started teaching at Pepperdine, and, and it was a very difficult time for me because it was like these are young people. You, They're going to know if you're lying. They're going to know if you're trying to pull a fast one on them like any younger person does. And so you've really got to have your stuff together, you know, and you have to present yourself in a very humble way. Because if you come in too strong or too much of, you know, boasting or prideful or having that chip on your shoulder, they're not going to listen. They're just going to sit there and do their time and expect a grade and that's it. And I try to embrace every meeting I've ever taken, the conversation you're having with me right now as an opportunity just to share in hopes that it inspires and encourages other people. And I I think over my career, having been that boastful person, and life experience, and I'm older, you just start to have a transition in your life, and you start to realize, like my wife said, it really, at the end of the day, is just a job. It's just how good you become is through the experiences that you've had. And then when you give back, it's almost like you're just blessed with more. It's it's crazy to me how that works, but it does happen. Yeah, and when of it, and when you slow down enough to see it and realize it, everything just changes in your heart.
0: Sure, that's you can only receive what you give out. Exactly. You know? um, yeah. I'm. I, that's. I just told you. You know, I had uh, started this cycle, Guts, uh brand, and about life change. And you asked me, well, what was the change you made? And, uh, and I stopped drinking and just doing things different. But I also just started living. Uh, more grateful every day. You know, every morning I start my day off in my mind of remembering how many great things I have. And also, you know, I try to be honest with other people. Even if you're a stranger, I'll share my troubles I've had and maybe insight. And I've been, I've had lived a crazy life. So when I can, you know, let people know that they don't feel so alone in their craziness. and. You know, we're all here for a very short time, so we should also believe in karma because it's very real. And, you know, the stories that you were just mentioning and how you were here and this fell into this, and that's kind of how everything's happened to me. You know, now I'm in film school, as you know, and it's just, I would have never guessed I'd be here five years ago. And it's like you can't plan for the future, but you got to plan for everything. And it's just this, you know, there's an energy in the world that uh, if you tap into it, you'll be on the right path and just follow it kind yeah. of, you know, you can, your gut and your senses are very strong and believe them. And, mm-hmm. you know, you know what your strengths are and know what your weaknesses are and what to stay away from and people to stay away from. I do, I have to ask you about the last dance though. So you've been watching it for the last couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have all this footage from 1998, 97 season. So I just want your... Opinion on this? Do you think Jordan's obviously behind this big time, and he's probably, you know, getting the final cut okay on everything because it's about him, and he comes off very arrogant and, you know, he's like a tyrant almost on the Bulls. No one would ever have thought he didn't really want to be, he wanted to be the best in basketball, but he didn't want to be this, you know, kind of spokesperson for African Americans or being, you know, um, this role model, I guess. What, how, what are we taking from the, uh, the documentary, The Last Dance?
1: He's, he's a perfect example of what the media can do to a human being. Yes. Um, I think I, I worked with, with Michael in Phoenix. I did a whole piece <laughs> on him um, when he was playing baseball. And he was in Tempe, and I spent the day just doing a Nat Sound piece on Michael. We had spent the earlier part of the day interviewing him and doing all the sports stuff for the nightly um, cast. And then I stayed and, and got all these people lining up. And I, in fact, I just had a friend of mine ask me if I ever had worked with him. And I said, Yeah, let me show you this piece. So I sent him a link to the piece. It's part of a Nat Sound thing that I put together for Pepperdine. And I watched it again and I was like, Wow, and there's him hitting the ball, and every hit there's a cut. Um, and it started, I just started reflecting on everything that was in the CSPN doc series. and. Um, the thing that's so amazing to me is that I think there are some of us that know his work ethic and knows his discipline and how if you're a coach and you don't say hi to him and you know him, he's going to use that against you. And that's what that. he did. George Carl. And, yep. And I think when you're on a team that thinks they're all high and mighty, like last night's episode, Kerr and Bushler, and, and you guys. come in and you get punched in the chest, you know. <laughs> Um, and he's there to do something great, and everybody has that expectation, but the people that are there are celebrating that they're on the Bulls and looking how great we are when they weren't even there when they won three in a row. And then what he did when they were making Space Jam, he was so smart inviting all these players, and he knew he did not want to lose again, you know, especially to somebody that was a former player on the Bulls. So there's all these like moments where you start to realize he's not just competitive. He just had an inner engine that just had to win. He had to be the best. And was he, at moments, arrogant and kind of an a-hole? Of course he was. But everybody he played with, he brought up with himself. And I think when you pull people up, again, it's that mentoring thing. When you look at what Kobe said in the first, I think, what third episode, fourth episode, about how there would have been no Kobe without Michael. There would have been no five with the Lakers without Michael. Of course, yeah. I think a lot of teams and the majority of players will say that about Michael Jordan. And there's a reason behind that, and it's, it's his work ethic. It's his players' mentality that you don't stop you keep going
0: (laughs) his spirit and his work ethic that you can see now is just i mean it could melt steel beams he just you know he's gambling with the security guards and he just he's laughing taking their money from them. you know who can get the coin closest to the wall and he's just you know he embarrassed his opponents he wanted to Mm. make you feel bad he wanted to leave with your money and growing up in chicago he would always be on the riverboats there and you'd hear about jordan was there and he you know won 250 (laughs) last night and (laughs) Uh, you know Scotty Pippen I actually waited on him when I worked at the yacht club oh, and he'd cool. leave me 15 cents his name was no-tippin-pippin <laughs> um, all summer long he never tipped wow. I mean it was very I just wow. was you know 15 years old happy to be around you know this pro-NBA player he'd come over on a boat with a couple girls he was a
1: little PO'd oh you can paid. really sense that yeah. he was screwed And yeah, was they screwed
0: even said Michael was underpaid Jerry Reinsdorf said that because he mm-hmm. paid his contract while he was still playing baseball yeah. at 3 million and Um, You know, it's incredible to watch all this, but it's like, what are they not showing even on top of this? You know, it's like, I'm sure Michael's team, you know, his attorneys, and this is all cut up a certain way. But um, I can't even believe that he allowed the cameras to follow him for a year. Why would he want that? Yeah, they've
1: kept this stuff in the can for years. sitting on gold. I think he he just knew eventually that it would be something to have. Didn't know what it was going to be. There was no HD then. And everything was shot on film. And anything that was up-res, you can tell. But the production value, the music, the orchestration, the the sequencing, um, the connective tissues of storyline, just everything in it is just top notch. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's it's like so well done,
0: is so well done. ESPN's the production team behind that. Yeah, or? I mean it's the thirty okay. thirty guys. Oh yeah, and they
1: basically nice. took the footage and then orchestrated it in a way that just made a beautiful symphony. I mean, it's just amazing.
0: Yeah. the... The music they play, there was a great song last night from Luis uh, something, the Spanish guitar player. Um, but yeah, everything is just, it's so top notch. One of my other favorite 30 for 30s was the broke one, where mm-hmm. the guys ran through all their money and like Andre Ryzen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is just so good. I mean, to get all the footage they have, they just, I mean, their vaults must just be filled with. It and is. It's end f- of last
1: year, I was doing a um, piece for Netflix with Brightside Creative and um, they uh, wanted to do interviews with all the top NBA players, but it was more from the direction of what did you do with all your money? How did you spend it? Who in your life helped you through that? And then actually talking to the people that basically mentored players on how to invest their money how yeah. to not blow it all in a big house and and to, because Buy you never one know. one chain,
0: you, one car. Yeah,
1: because if you're going to get injured, you're done, and then what are you going to do? And it was really interesting. It's supposed to come out next year.
0: Well, now all rookies have to go through that course, yes. right? And yeah. I forget what the name of it is, but
1: that's what basically motivates the show.
0: Do you think that a documentary is better than a feature film just because it's real? I mean, I, some of the documentaries that I've seen nowadays, even The Last Dance, for instance. It's so much more powerful because it's like a true story. And I think those hit me a lot harder than any feature film could do. Would you agree with that? Is that why you've had so much success or interest in uh, being a documentarian? Also, not just with your feature documentary, but also working on Robin Big, Bonaduce, Two Quarries. Do you look for that kind of work because it's more appealing to you?
1: Um, I didn't really look for it. It kind okay. of just fell in my lap. And I think it's just based on my journalism career. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, uh, if there's anything that I really um, look for is the opportunity to keep it real. I've, when I was in television news, I had a very strong code of ethics. I really um, never took advantage of the First Amendment but always abided, abided by it and felt that it was my duty as a journalist to be the public's voice, not to tell them which way to turn, what to look forward to, um, or which way to go, what direction to go but to give them a 50-50 balanced amount of information to where they can make their own decision and complement their life. You know, take that story that they see on the news to the next day at the water cooler and share it. Give them a surprise element to talk about with their friends. And I think documentaries do the same thing. I mean, I think we find ourselves now currently watching documentaries like crazy. And a lot of documentaries are not real. A lot of them claim to be a documentary but there's a lot of forced perspective if you will within that film and that really bugs me but you know what there's an entertainment side to it i get it and you've got to sell and you've got to make your money back um you know i don't think you make documentaries to make money or get rich off of you just don't you're telling really heartfelt stories and it's a passion that you have as a filmmaker as a doc film filmmaker and I have that passion, and I don't run out looking for the next documentary. I haven't. I've not made another feature doc. In fact, we're doing a narrative of Jesse's story. We're actually pretty close to jumping off right now. And so for me, it's like there's a lot of stories out there to be told. There's a lot of stories that have been told. You look at Michael Moore's work. Everybody has an opinion about it, but it stirs emotions. It makes people think, and that's what documentaries are for. Narratives are great. I think narratives that are based on true stories um, are fun because they're relative to us. We've seen or heard something or read something about the subject matter of a narrative that's based on fact. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you can get in the trenches and actually tell a story and not muck with it and not change it and not force anything and, and actually be a true doc, um, it's fantastic. Yeah. And the experience making one, and I can say this because I've done it, is... There's no paycheck big enough to even match what you get out of it.
0: My friend Justin Robert Purser, director, uh, lives right down the street here. He just, uh, well, it's out now. It's uh, on the Hobgood Twins, two pro surfers. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. called Two If by Sea. And, you know, he crowdfunded the money, and uh, it's about these two pro surfers that are twins and growing up and trials and tribulations and trying to separate themselves. But uh, he said exactly what you just did. You know, they grew up together in Florida. And he just had to share the story, and you know, Um, yeah. I mean, a good doc is just—it's you can't beat it. What Tiger King? It's crazy. It's that's force, though, wouldn't you agree? Some of it is not—is that or is it in the editing room? I don't
1: really have a lot to say about it. (laughs) It's just crazy. Because Rick Kirkham was my partner in news in Vegas. No way, that's the
0: old guy with the big hat who was
1: Inside Editions, like poster child for news, and ended up making a film called News Junkie where he recorded himself for 20 years smoking crack and interviewing presidents and everybody else and it's an amazing documentary. It's difficult to watch. You oh. want to watch a true doc? Watch that one. How
0: have we not heard about this?
1: It's because it was underground. He he basically had two U-Haul trucks full of raw footage. Footage that I shot, mostly. Whoa. And stole it over the years because reporters just hoard tapes in their in their desks at that time. There's no yeah. more tape now, so you can't do that. And he kept them all. He has all my raw footage, a lot of my own. I have a lot of my own raw footage. But he and I would go out, and we did a story um, on the Northtown, North Las Vegas. Um, they had a ninja drug squad, and we would, they were called the Northtown Nasty Boys. And NBC actually did a show called The Nasty Boys for three seasons. And it was basically created by... Um, Sergeant Bradley, who was the sergeant of the actual team in North Las Vegas. And we would go and do ride-alongs with them. And I would actually be in the van with all these guys in ninja outfits with police on the back. And we would slide the door open, and I'd run up with the camera, and they would basically rip the bars off of houses and go in and bust like babies with crack in their diapers or guys flushing stuff down the toilet. Wow. And so we just did that constantly. Well, unbeknownst to a lot of people, and it's in the film, He was asked if he wanted to try, and that's how he got hooked. One, that's all it takes. It was really, um, it turned. It was a. I would never say this, but it's all in the film. I'm in the film, getting geared up to go in with a jacket on and everything. And uh, so, yeah. TV junkie. When I saw he was in it, I just couldn't watch it.
0: Oh, so you haven't Uh, seen Tiger King?
1: I saw the first episode, and my wife and I were just kind of like, really? Yeah. No, it's just not. I mean, I can see why it's gained so much popularity. It's outrageous. It's outrageous. It's, it's extreme doc yeah.
0: television. Do you think that we're always, you know, everything we consume, do you, would you agree that it just has to be so crazy nowadays to be successful in um, the broad?
1: I think before the time that we're in now, yes. I think the time that we're in now, we've all slowed down enough to, I, and I hope this, this is, I mean, just coming from my own perspective and my own opinion. Um, everything before this whole coronavirus, COVID-19 thing happened, life was just at a rapid-fire pace. Internet speed, information faster than the local news guys, the national news guys could do, the international news guys, because we all have phones and we all have that ability. And when it all slowed down to a near stop, where we're all locked up in our houses and we don't really understand what's happening or why and we're unemployed and businesses are shutting down and people are dying, but not masses of people, but yet we need to be adhere to what the, the rule makers are saying, um, we have a moment to kind of look around and see the things that we've taken for granted. And so I think in that, a lot of people are starting to say, do we really need something that crazy? Can we just get something that's a little bit more simple? Yeah. Or why are we so drawn to that? Are we just looking to be entertained? And so I think, hopefully, you know, and I hope it's, it's on my heart, that people just take a moment to just kinda of slow down a little bit and not be in a hurry to get back to that mm-hmm. and really take advantage of, of what we've been able to endure. I feel totally just um, saddened by the people that have been lost, the people that are still sick. Um, there's all of that, for sure. I pray for them, constantly. But at the end of the day, it's like you have to look at some of the positive too. It's been like a reset. Yeah. It's like businesses are closing, people are out of work, but businesses will re- reopen and people will be rehired but with a different perspective. Yeah. And I think that perspective could be something really positive. And so I try to stay in that vein as much as possible. Um, so it might be why I didn't watch it because I mean, it, it's bizarre television, you know, and I was surprised that Netflix i am and i'm not because i know a couple of people that top ranks at netflix but i get it but at the end of the day you know it's it's what people watch when they're bored at home
0: yeah i you know what you just said taking this time also it's like utilize this time to really spend you know quality time with your kids if you work all the time or um you know get in shape eat a little better maybe you know stop smoking uh Write a script, do something productive. You know, you have all this time and people are just sitting at home on Facebook complaining all day and it's I don't know do people think they're gonna change others' opinions by, you know, copy and pasting a you know, some propaganda from somewhere and it's just it's nonstop battling. I was just saying to this gentleman here that running the camera that, you know, I can't even watch the news, I'll just go on like Joe Rogan or some other person that I trust to get an opinion. This alternative media that we have now on YouTube. There's so many great shows, this one included. That you know are just interesting to watch and learn about people, and it's real, and it's not you know some reality show that's scripted and uh, you know like the Kardashians. I mean, how? I don't want to talk anything more about this than we have to, but they don't do anything on that show. They literally have a half hour or an hour show, and it's edited so crazy with some cool graphics, and it'll be like that. Courtney didn't call Kim back, or she doesn't like olives. And then they do that, and it's like a whole segment. It's like, what did I just watch there? What is the draw of this? This that it's so outrageous? Are there pretty girls? I mean, this is just a massive...
1: Well, all the above of what you just said. Okay. But if you think about it, what was the show of the 90s that was all about nothing?
0: 90210? Seinfeld. Oh, okay. It's a show about nothing. But there was humor in that. No,
1: though. granted. But that's because it was about nothing. And it was funny, and you had great characters. So the Kardashians, it's a show about nothing... But But you've got good-looking family that still, as characters, they're just bizarre. It's just out of this... I met Kim when we were doing a pilot called It Girls, and it was right after... Paris Hilton's show that you worked on? Yeah. Okay. And so we went over to Paris' house. The girl that we were... One of the three girls needed a dress to go walk the carpet with Paris, and we were going to shoot it. So we shot the process of her going to Paris' house and getting a dress, and... So we're up in this closet, amazing. It was like the size of this room, and just nothing but dresses, and this little center island in the middle, and we're shooting in there, and I'm directing, and, um, and we're finished, and we go back downstairs, and remember the egg, the, the, the clear egg chairs that Rob had? Oh, and, yeah, yeah. And, the and, big broke, yeah, yeah. And Chris broke it. Well, there were two of them downstairs, and I go downstairs, and there's this girl sitting in one of them. And I was like, whoa, who's that? And so Paris introduced me. It was Kim. It's far prettier then, too. And she didn't have a job. <laughs> she was designing closets. That was her thing. Yeah. She designed Paris's closet. And I was blown away by that. And so, it the, so the next thing I know, I'm, I'm just like, okay, all right, yeah. She's going to be something. And, of course, she catapulted much further than Paris did.
0: There's an amazing uh, clip in O.J.'s Made in America documentary, which was Mm -hmm. so well done Mm -hmm. as well. But one of the guys that he sent to jail for ripping him off or was involved in that whole thing in Vegas uh, was laughing because they were the first episode of Keeping Up with Kardashians that came on. And O.J.'s like, hey, I know that girl. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that was just insane. It's just these a lot of people, you know, I'm from the Midwest. and They don't understand how crazy celebrities are. They're insane. Them,
1: that's why the Midwest has the most viewers of reality television.
0: I mean, they just... It's the closer like closer a- you
1: get to the West or to the East, that that excitement for reality just kind of
0: fades. Yeah.
1: But in the middle of America, oh my... Every time I go there to shoot, whether it's Christmas Life Fight or whatever show, it's insane how many people just get crazy about reality people.
0: I want to... Uh- you started off doing Breaking Bonaducci kind of this uh, reality series. That was the first one. Mm-hmm. How did that come into play for you?
1: A um, buddy of mine, Jeff Hamby. Who Breaking
0: Bonaducci started to cut you off, yeah, was the no story about Danny Bonaducci And it was kind of his troubles with <clears throat> being in recovery or with steroids. Can you give me? I'm not really sure. I've seen one or two episodes. and.
1: Um. Yeah, the show started off as just uh, like a dinner with the Bonaduchis, where Danny and his wife Gretchen, the pilot, or actually the sizzle, was all about them just inviting their celebrity friends over, and then what are we going to cook? And that was really the catalyst for the, the sizzle. Well, while they were shooting, and I wasn't part of this, um, the the A1, the audio supervisor, Mike Budzik, um, Danny walked up to him and said, Hey, we're in... Uh, we're in therapy. Couples therapy. You guys want to come and shoot it? <laughs> and so Mike called Troy Sears, a very dear friend of mine, gave me the show. producer. Yep. He uh, he told Mike, yeah, we got to do that. That's never been done before. It had never been done. Nobody had ever let cameras into, um, into therapy, especially couples therapy, especially with that guy. And uh, so they went, and that was it. The show immediately became what ultimately now is Breaking Bonaduce. And so... I did the pie. I was asked to come in um, for a meeting. A buddy of mine, Jeff Hamby, had done some work with Freeball, which was JD Roth's company. Mm-hmm. And he told JD or somebody, said, hey, a buddy of mine in San Diego, he's leaving news. He's coming up. He's got something he wants love to pitch. And so they gave me a meeting. I came in and I didn't even get to pitch it. They just said to me, so what do you want to do? It looks like you want to, from your resume, it looks like you could direct. I was like, well, ultimately, that's what I'd love to do, yeah. But, you know, I'm just here to see what happens with this yeah. idea I have for a show. And they uh, said, well, okay, that's well and good. But you want to direct a pilot? We're doing a pilot with uh, this guy from the Partridge family. Danny Bonaduce. I go, I do know, Danny. I used to have their male, I used to have their lunchbox when I was a kid. And I was a big Partridge family fan. Sure. And um, I had heard how crazy he was. And
0: you had been signed on to do the pilot mm-hmm. and shoot the pilot, present it pitch it and they just fall out of their seats
1: yeah pretty much (laughs) didn't take much Danny's nuts but he knows what makes good television so you didn't have to really tell anything my job was was to anticipate what he was gonna do next get in his head and have the cameras there to document it and the stuff that he did was just to this day I've never experienced a show so crazy watch the show so crazy let alone be the director and dp of it It it's like insane and i was able to bring up people from san diego that i had hired at the fox affiliate there to shoot on the show because we're all true storytellers when you're in news you can't tell people what to do you can't ask them to do things that they wouldn't normally do in the normal function of what that moment is so if somebody's getting ready to leave go to the garage get in a car and drive to a doctor's office, you can slow that down, but you can't change the momentum. You can't change their steps. Yeah. You can slow it down so you can get the shots in and out of frame, but don't tell them to do something in a different way. And they understood that and that's basically what we had to do with Monteducci was just chase that little guy around and, and his wife, it was you know, it was hard to see his wife go through what she went through. It was hard to see his kids go through. Um, and it was hard at times to see Danny just, you know, completely unravel. And just, it was nuts.
0: Yeah, well, I remember the one episode he was that got down on Sunset or Hollywood Boulevard with his shirt off. And he was drunk then? Was he drinking things? No, this?
1: basically, they that, that scene's called The Bonaduce. Um, he had just, we had just gotten back from therapy with Dr. Gary. And he was just really PO'd. And we got to the, he, they used to live up by, um, um, off of, up in Las Feliz. Okay. Really like two doors down from the Greek theater. Okay. In one Vermont. of the houses up there. Vermont. Griffith, in Griffith Park, yeah. And so he came down his street on this off-road skateboard and got to like Las Feliz Boulevard. Traffic's going nuts. And we're chasing him with cameras. And um, my buddy Brian Keenan, um, he chased him on foot with me. And I just wanted to keep him safe and he walked up to the street, put the skateboard over his shoulder and with no shirt on, just walked through traffic, and traffic's going, not stopping, as if it was a scripted scene. <laughs> and you guys are and there with he, the Yeah, we shot the whole thing. <laughs> and then he gets, he gets on his board and he goes to this liquor store, and he walks in the door, and he grabs a small bottle of Absolute and a bottle of cranberry juice, pays for it, we shoot the whole thing in the store and everything. And people in the store are like what's going on
0: here? you have to get clearance from that?
2: No.
1: Okay. We went back and got okay. it but we couldn't show anything in the store just out in front because it was a public sidewalk. At that time it was okay. Um, and he sat down on the curb and he just basically took the vodka bottle, put it on top of the cranberry and shook it and sat there and guzzled without a breath, without stopping, the whole bottle. And so they call wow. that the Bonaduce. And that whole thing aired every bit of that sequence aired. And it was probably one of the most memorable, outside of him jumping out of a limo at 20 miles an hour with me in tow and Brian Keenan again. Yeah, it was pretty nuts. And that was, every day was that way. So it was exciting to go to work. I can tell you that
0: much. Was this a relapse he was having then? Or was he 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 had been drinking throughout the... No,
1: I think think at the end of the day, when you're given the opportunity to have a show and uh, just knowing Danny and The way I do know him, I I don't know him outside of the show that well. Um, He was just in a position where he wanted to jumpstart his career again. You know, he's the guy that throws people over his shoulders. The guy gets into a boxing ring knowing he's going to lose, but he he takes it. Yeah. Because he knows it's going to get his name out there. He needs that. He needs to feed that. And so it became very psychological. You know, we learned a lot about ourselves through that process at his expense, which is kind of a weird place to be as it is with any reality show. you know, We're sitting watching it because it's relatable to us. If it wasn't relatable, we wouldn't sure. be watching it. It wouldn't have gotten greenlit to do wow. the show. Yeah, Can exactly. we relate to Kim Kardashian? I certainly can't. Mm. But I know people like that that I can kind of relate to in my own life. And you kind of watch it with that interconnectivity, that human side of it. And that's why we have to binge watch. That's why we, it's like Michael Jordan clear beginning middle and end to every episode but there were threads that carried it into the next episode because that was his career it was a true story that's not reality television that's true doc Mm
0: -hmm.
1: reality television there's these moments where you're just like pulled in because it's relatable you can say wow i couldn't imagine if i did that or i've done that and then you want to see what happens next because that person that you may have done something like they are going to go in a completely different direction Danny broke his hand doing karate chops on wood for his daughter, <laughs> Isabella, showing off on camera. Next thing you know, he's at the doctor getting, you know, different pills, mixed it with the vodka, started taking roids. He literally walked up to me in his house. I'll never forget it. Maria Martin, different name now. She was a shooter. I'm standing there next to her, we're in the house. He comes up to me and he goes, Hey, come upstairs, or you're gonna miss it. I'm like, okay. This is day one. This is day one. This is the first day, okay, of the series. Yeah. So we go upstairs, we're in this little gym. He pulls out this little lunch pail, Partridge Family lunch pail, opens it up, and there's anabolic steroids. I remember that. And I'm standing there, Maria's like this close to me. It's a um, stationary bike. He put the, the lunchbox on the seat of the stationary bike, opened it up, pulled down his pants, jabbed the needle in his side, pushed it and I'm on the radio going Troy are you watching the monitors and he's like yeah just keep shooting oh my god!
0: and from that
1: point forward episode one first day from that point forward it was just and so when those shows started going to the network execs they were just like holy crap and the thing that was great about it was it was you know couples therapy train wreck yes but there was something to it that again was relatable people that were going through the same issues whether it be drugs and alcoholism, or it would be a broken relationship, people in therapy, there was something there. There was a lesson to be learned. And we weren't trying to justify us doing the show through those means. It, was, it just became evident. There was something there that people could learn from. And that really, at that time, I, start, I did shows on OCD. I did shows with two Corys. I was with Corey Haim every day. I would shoot down the show because he would show up wasted. And I was like, dude, I'm not putting my crew in peril. I'm not gonna do that. We're gonna shut it down for the day. And so in those shows, there was always something to give back to the viewers. And I felt that way in news. So I felt like some of the philosophy I had in news, as far as complimenting people's lives that watched a story delivered 50-50 and it complimented their lives or they took something from it that, hey, I didn't think about that. Or no, I don't wanna be for that. I wanna be for this. They take something away from what we do. If we don't have that element, and why are we wasting yeah. somebody's time on the couch? We have got to give back to the audience.
0: Uh, let's touch down on the two Corys real quick because I'm—I mean, I grew up in the Goonies age, and you know, I, Corey Haim was my hero with License to Drive, mm-hmm. and you know, I, when I moved out here, I had to go see the Elray Theater because I knew that was that big scene in License to Drive, and just silly. But, um, so you get tapped to do this—you're going to direct this. You know Corey Feldman, you know Corey Haim. It's their relationship together. They're telling stories. Um, Corey Hames passed away now. What, same scenario, same setup as Bonaduce? That's why you had been tapped to do this? Or, because was, Corey's was after Bonaducci correct? Same producer. Oh, okay. Troy
1: Sear. Um,
0: and he said, I got another one for us. We're gonna go follow well, these guys
1: around. I mean, now." It wasn't like that, but it was, you know, when you, you're presented with somebody that's trying to get back into the business, make a name for himself again. He'd been in Canada. Um, Corey Feldman's Corey Feldman thankfully I didn't have to work with him too much Um, and I don't mean that in a bad way I just meant that in a way that I was focused on Corey Haim and he needed that focus from I think just a higher power putting me there God putting me there Mm -hmm. in his life Um, and so for me to be with Corey almost every single day and the other supervising producer because I was supervising producer and director the other one was with Feldman most of the time and Feldman He's in Hollywood, he's got friends, he's got a wife, he is Corey Feldman. Came from Canada, his mom came down, you know, it was a different situation, and he found himself in a position where, again, um, he injured himself, and the next thing you know, it just started to steamroll. Uh And it was everything that, that I think all of the crew, and the producers, and everybody could do to not go down that rabbit hole. And so I think in, in my position, having gone through what I went through with Danny, because we were in Malibu Canyon for a month as Danny went through a rehab facility up there. So it was a lot to learn how clinicians and therapists work through doing Breaking Bonaduce and then to almost be in the same situation with the, the two quarries. It kind of was like you're just gleaning off of what you've learned through experience and hopefully the way you represent yourself to somebody like, like Corey, Haid, um, there's a benefit for him that he starts to listen to you. And there are moments in the show. I don't know if you've seen like the last episode. I'm in the show um, as are a lot of the crew trying to talk him off of everything, you know, and, and the drugs. Yeah, the and it was just it was. I took it really personal. It was a really it was a tough moment. I got really not close, close, but um, close enough
0: or, you know, any other human being wouldn't care as much. What, at what point do you intervene? What, when you say, when you start up a project and you're following someone around and they're erratic, crazy behavior, do you make a promise to you and your crew that we should, we're here to shoot this, we're doing a job, you know, he's getting physical with somebody or is there any a point where you guys would step in yeah. and say, oh, yeah. I mean, obviously you just said yeah. you know, try to talk him down and stuff, yeah. but at the same time, it's like you are there to do a job, and it's kind of, you know, you need the crazy behavior because it's the truth It's what's really going on. I, I never looked Not at you're it... a tabloid journalist. No, and I don't think I ever
1: looked at it as, as a quote-unquote need. Um, for me, it was, this is happening right now. We're covering it. And I do have my limitations, and I will step in when I need to. And you're a big and guy. I
0: wouldn't want to You let
1: listen. it go <laughs> just enough, you know, and it doesn't have to go as far as sometimes it did. The director. And some, then sometimes when it goes that far, you're just kind of going, it's nothing I could have done. It just yeah. happened, you know?
0: The director is the one, though, in these situations that's kind of. We're
1: ultimately responsible, yeah. 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 That's where the cops turn, is who's directing this. Whether it's narrative, doc, doesn't matter.
0: Did Corey pass away in Canada, or was he at the Oakwood Apartments? It was
1: at uh, Oakwood.
0: And, the, and that's by he Rob's house, too, his, right?
1: Yeah, he was taking care of his mom who had cancer. And it was stage four cancer. And he didn't die of drugs. He was clean really yeah he had a heart murmur nobody oh, knew yeah. about his heart murmur he had it when we were shooting the show and I that's how I got to him was like dude you've got this in your heart and you're doing this stop it you know I mean we were on the set of Lost Boys 2 and the director came to me and said would you go and talk to Corey we need to shoot this we're just burning money so it was it was yeah I mean it was quite quite and I again I say these things to you because they're all on they're in the show yeah it's not like I'm hiding. It's your life, too,
0: yeah. <laughs> um, so I first came to find out who you were uh, 13 years ago when I had first moved here. Um, I knew some of the people in Rob Dyrdek's camp, Nino Scalia, and I had I came over there to maybe do a PA job, but I think it was to see Nino or something, and you and Shane were there. Um, who was the production company behind with MTV? Is that Buna Murray?
1: No, it wasn't Buna. Who was it? No, it was just Dick House. OK, yeah, it was Jeff Dick Tremaine's was company. Tremaine. Yeah. OK, so
0: Whole he thing. he kind of Rob's idea off the D.C. video.
1: Yeah, well, it was the cannonball started. Oh, off yeah. With, no um, Gumball Gumball. Yeah, Gumball with. Um, oh, what's his name? Max. No, he did. He just did um, Zombieland directed. To oh, Ruben Fleischer. Ruben Fleischer. So Ruben Fleischer basically is the brain behind Gumball. He's the brain behind um, a lot of Robin Big. Um, he was the guy, and he's still doing a lot. So.
0: Yeah, he just did another great film. He did Gangster Squad. Um. Yeah,
1: a lot of big names in that that film.
0: So as Chris Christopher Boykin's he's also
1: doing Stumptown. He's EP on Stumptown on
0: Stumptown? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a series. Yeah. Okay. ABC. I don't watch really, anything. Really
1: good. Really good.
0: Um, but Rob, they filmed uh, Christopher Big Black Boykin, Rob Dyrdek. They go on this gumball, uh, which is a car, not a race, but it's just a yeah, it's like tour. a gumball rally. A rally, and they went from, did they do Europe or San Francisco to L.A. or something? They
1: did Long Beach all the way across to New York or okay. something, yeah.
0: And Rob comes up with this extra video for D.C. That he needs a security guard, and they've been pitching it to MTV. And nobody knew who the hell Rob Dyrdek was. He was a, a pro skater, but. If you're a skater, you knew who Rob OK. Was. Yeah. I'm not. But <laughs> I had came over there. and I didn't really care who Rob was. And I thought it was kind of a stupid idea for a show and whatever. And I got moved to, <laughs> I think, Newlyweds with Nick and Jessica or something oh, was going on at that yeah, time. Yeah. This was, was a really great show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, But uh, what's the process of getting that show? Because that was a monster hit for MTV. Um, I mean, I think that has some of the highest ratings I on MTV, think- too.
1: A lot of it. I was rep by William Morris at that time, and um, I had done Adventures in Hollywood with Three Six Mafia, with um, Kutcher and all those guys, and um, the success of Bonaduce I think had a lot to do with it. Um, I was getting tapped to do Kitchen Nightmares, with Gordon. Yeah. So I was getting all the all the you know really um, the people that make good television. I'll just leave it at that. Um, and Rob and Chris are they were forces, they were comedic they were Abbott and Costello on skateboard you know and um, and I think it just was the success of Tremaine at that time with Jackass and and doing multiple follow ups Um, that was interesting to go and speak with Jeff in his office and almost be um, duped into having uh, a Miller High Life bottle filled with urine (laughs) They, they they did some crazy stuff and um, I mean, we pulled up in front of the production company I was with Three Six Mafia and we were doing the last scene of the pilot and they were doing the title song for Jackass 2. And so we came in to meet with them. And we were shooting it and we pulled up. They had a silver shadow, Rolls Royce, mink carpet and everything. Their Oscar literally was in a little panel in the trunk that they won. And so they pulled it out of the trunk.
0: That's a true story, too. Oh, 100%. I, Victory Bell's Gary Bell's son, who owns House of Blues. They they always were over there recording in Encino. Yeah. And I saw the car with yeah, that, yeah, too. That's yeah. exactly true.
1: Well, they saw girls. We were right by um, um, Hollywood and Vine. And they saw some girls by a bar, uh, Burger King. And we were shooting car-to-car stuff. And all of a sudden, they pull in the Burger King. I'm like, what are they doing? <laughs> they pull in. They start talking to these girls, like, hey, you want to see my Oscar? I'm like, get out. Who do you guys think you are, blah, blah, blah. Oh yeah, and they opened up the trunk and there's the Oscar. We were, it was all on camera. It was hysterical. Um, anyways, we pulled up in front of Tremaine's offices and Steve os out front peeing in the bush. <laughs> Broad daylight, like there's a little stand there to get like hamburgers or something right on the corner in front of their old office. I'm just like Dick House's office. This is gonna be great. This would be a great shoot. <laughs> it was nuts. And then Jeff's like, you should come in and see part of the what we're doing for Jackass Two, and it was that whole scene with um, Wee Man on this bar stool and he kept getting electrocuted and he was, you know, That was one of the greatest skits ever. And the snake thing.
0: Oh, yeah. He lives down here, Jason Acuna. He owned Chronic Tacos right down the street that's no more, but I see him all the time skating around. Uh, Extremely nice guy lives by me kind of um
1: but no i think that was just through the agency and um just reputation of the shows the crazy shows that i had done and did
0: you get three six to do because rob on the first episode or on the pilot they had uh, the party in the backyard with yeah, the pool there yeah um and three six performed I
1: think, I think maybe my name helped i didn't call them and say hey okay. come over no it's not like that so
0: <laughs> rob has this idea he gets a budget you guys show up at the house one day and then he has, Rob is a force in coming up with story ideas. and Yeah, every day. Every I mean, he, day. It was like was... I
1: would come in and I'd kind of say, hey, what are we doing today? You know, and they're like, go talk to Rob. And I'd go upstairs and he'd still be waking up. You know, i go, what do you want to do? Ah, you know, Chris needs a new bed. But <laughs> Ikea bed's crap. So the next thing you know, we're bouncing all over a mat- mattress store. And then they're trying to figure out how to get the mattress on their SUV to bring it back. And that's the episode, you know. Or we're driving for a skate thing in San Diego. And you know he's just riding dirty. And the next thing you know, he gets pulled over by a cop. And that was all real. Yeah. And we're just following along, shooting car to car. And we pull into the, to the mall. And they didn't stop. They thought, I guess, they were untouchable because we were shooting the show.
0: Yeah, I remember that. The cop
1: just unleashed on them. It was yeah. fantastic. Television. The cop's like, don't put me on TV. And we're like, we'll fuzz your face.
0: And Black's kind of going oh, back and man. forth with them. It
1: was, yeah. But what? there are a lot of moments like that.
0: But as Black said on TV, he was living down the street. He was never in the house. No, the
1: house was a house for television, too. Yeah. It wasn't really Rob's house. Okay. It was, for that time, he was living there.
0: I knew Erica Schaefer, who he dated, I think, at that time. Did you ever meet Erica? She's a realtor. I might have. Um, yeah, I don't remember. But I thought he had purchased that f- Was it for the show, though. I mean, yeah, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was genius television. I mean, just funny you know, make you feel good, kind of stuff, small too, crew, you know?
1: Not a lot of lights. What were it you rolling around? Real. What cameras are you using on that? GBX 100Bs.
0: Two of them? Two, Two guys? Them. And That's just, it. what yeah. What do you have in and the a car? A of,
1: just small. GoPros? No, cigar cams, Sony's, old school.
0: And then, like, what's, uh, we're mutual friends with Shane Nickerson. He's yeah. a big MTV guy, uh, obviously, with uh, especially with Jeff on Fantasy Factory and uh, Dude Perfect now. What what's uh, his role as an EP on that? Or was he, he was a,
1: mostly an edit. Okay. Yeah, he was really kind of like supervising all the cuts, making sure that the comic was there and it was written well. And, and he comes from a comedy orchestra. background, yeah, groundlings.
0: He's really yeah, funny guy. Um, and you guys had your like studio kind of in the basement where the pool table was. There was that. Um,
1: damn, There really wasn't a place for us. There wasn't really a tech room per se. It yeah. was a garage downstairs where he was keeping his rolls. his roles. <laughs> Bentley, I should say. Um, but that was about it. We pretty much worked out of our vehicles because we never knew when we were going to have to load up and go. And so we were already small, small camera. Um, but we had hops on it, you know, to a mixer. One mixer, two cameras, and me
0: bouncing I love around it. That's doing That's inspiring that. for a filmmaker to do that. It was fun. And I mean, Rob Deerdeck is a mogul now, gigantic. Did you know at the time that he was going to blow up off of this?
1: Yeah, after working with him a few times, you realize like, what this a businessman he is, and all of his decks are on the wall, and you're just like, he's drawing pictures of shoes and decks, and you're like, okay.
0: Yeah. yeah. I asked him to go out, like, party, and he's like, oh, I'm done with it. I got too much. I'm just going <laughs> to, you know, this is 13 years ago, but um, very nice person. Yeah, he's a great guy. Amazing stories. So... Let's talk about one of the greatest documentaries I've watched. Watched again for the second or third time last night. Again, it brought me into tears. Uh, the story of Jesse Ballauer, who was an amateur surfer and was paralyzed by a wave in 2001? No, 1997. 1997. How did Jesse come into your life?
1: Uh, news director at the Fox affiliate San Diego. Sports um, reporter came up to me. And Katie Temple, and she said, "Hey, you've got this story tomorrow um, about this guy in a wheelchair. He's going to go surfing. Kelly Slater's going to be there. Rob Machado's going to be there. All these great surfers." I'm like, "What? And I'm a surfer." And I was like, "I'll be there." Not even thinking about the guy in the wheelchair. And then the next morning, went out there to uh, oh, where the heck was that?
0: Encinitas, right?
1: No, it was above Encinitas. I'm trying to think of the break. Anyways, we show up and. Um, I meet Jesse, and that was it. Cardiff. Cardiff, yeah, Cardiff Reef. I met Jesse. It was over. It was done. He and I just hit it off, and I was blown away. This guy who's paralyzed from his shoulders down is going to get on a epic day. You saw the, in the film the stack of yeah. waves. just amazing. And Kelly Slater and all the surf stars was just nothing anymore because I was just blown away by what this guy was going to do. And... Um, after hearing that Rob had taken him out, pushed him into waves, and understanding the process, we shot the story, put the story together. Kelly's in it, Rob's in it. All these people. It was Kelly's birthday. Um, oh, yeah. Rod's unloading the board. They're paddling him out, I'm throwing him into these like you know they had to be four or five feet on the face. I'm just like what? And at that time, there's no helmet. There's you know he's not even wearing a he's not even wearing a, a life vest. He's yeah. just And he bounces around like a buoy. And um, He's like, I'll hold my
0: breath. I'm, I'm good at that.
1: So then I went to his house and delivered like an extended cut. Two of the best surfers in the world both live in Southern California, Kelly Slater and Rob Machado. A mile from Machado's home in Cardiff, the two celebrate Slater's 30th birthday by doing what they do the best and
2: love the most.
1: But today isn't about receiving gifts, it's about giving.
2: My first name's Lady Killer, last name's High Roller, A.K.A. otherwise known as Jesse Brad Hour. I'll go these or I'll take you out of the reef. Whatever feels yeah. good. Oh. As the tide goes out, the reef's gonna get there. I remember just pulling on, pulling in the barrel on one wave, and then I just came out and fell and went headfirst and into like a sandbar underneath the water, and everything went numb, and I was just floating, you know, in the water face down. It was. Going to be good. I was going to turn pro and travel and get paid to surf. When Jesse became paralyzed in the first place, Rob and Peter and I were up in in Los Angeles and uh, we went to see him the next day in the hospital. You know, so since the beginning we've obviously been concerned and realized it really strikes home, you know, that it could be any of our friends. It could be us. He called me up one day and said, Hey, I want to get back in the water, you know. He got we got a board made and and uh, it was we had no idea what we we're getting into but it turned out to be amazing and then ever since then it's just been over and over he just keeps every time we right. get a chance we're out there. These are the two best surfers in the world so to have them help you out it's a good feeling. It's just a special thing now that he's just he loves surfing so much he's he's willing to go out there and take the risk and um, you know he's. He doesn't care if he gets cleaned up, or hit by a big wave, or held underwater. He's just, he's just excited to ride waves. Basically, to ride those waves is everything to me. I mean, 365 days a year, I can surf and have a huge smile on my face. It's like making love. <laughs>
1: the six year anniversary
0: of Jesse's accident and he'd be kidding you if he said that there haven't been dark days.
2: I hear stories and I see friends of mine, the current world champion right now, C.J. Hawgood. I used to surf against him, I used to beat him, he used to beat me, so it's like all these people that I used to surf with are doing really good and I wish I knew like where I'd be at that time. He just inspires me to be a, a better person every day because he's so amazing, you know, he's such a strong heart. It's good, it's good. It's good for the soul. soul is just feeling free and open and loved and cared and knowing that life rolls on. I said, has anybody ever done a documentary? And Marina talked over about here? It?
1: No, he was, he was going to San Diego State. OK. So he was living in a house with a bunch of guys at San Diego State. He was in his senior year. And it was probably, I'd say, May. About to graduate. I said, has anybody ever done a doc or talk about it? He goes, no, but that'd be cool. And he was just starting to talk about doing a website, which ultimately became LRO, Life Rolls On. And um, I was like, yeah, I think I want to do a doc. Just start following you. What are you doing tomorrow? So well, I'm graduating tomorrow. I go, well, I'm a, well, that's going to be our first shoot. <laughs> so I shot him graduating, which is in the credits of the film. And um, from then on, it was eight years of my life just shooting all these pop-up tent surf events where he was just putting his name out there in his organization and inspiring young kids in high school, grammar school, corporations, high school, colleges, universities, just telling his story and how he gets back. And then I would shoot all the videos that he would show at all these speaking engagements. And I'd put them to music and they'd have titles. And then it was Jack Johnson, it was Ben Harper, it was Tristan Pittyman, all the people that are in the film are basically the ones that I was using as Final Cut 1 started back in 2002, 2001, all the way to Final Cut 7 when we finally did the final cut of the film. And so technology was changing at the same time I was shooting this film. So it started in SD, you know, 16 by 9 aspect, thank goodness. And yeah, DVC, I noticed that. DVC Pro 25-bit camera that could go into squeeze mode. And then all the footage that he had that his parents had shot through his childhood they just gave to me, I still have it, all the footage, all the eight yeah. millimeter, high eight, all this VHS footage of him him and his brother surfing. He was actually a pro surfer. He was sponsored by Bill O'Bong when he had an accident. Oh, really? Okay. And um, he was the next Kelly Slater. And so I just kept shooting his life, and they gave me all access. There's stuff that I wanted to show, but probably better I didn't. Um, just his process of his program, and. Um, how he has to be calfed and, you know, has to cut his, somebody else has to cut his stake, but yet he gets on a 15-foot wave and gets barreled in Fiji or goes. Shark, shark diving. diving. First ever quadriplegic to get oh, in a really? shark cage. Yeah, So, I mean, it was The whole crazy.
0: story, yeah. I mean, I'm all too familiar with, you know, overcoming adversity. A uh, father committed suicide and all these crazy tragedies. But I can, so I can really recognize, you know, just, not even what he's going through, but just relate what we were just talking about. And what I really picked up also in the film, uh, Jesse's story, if we hadn't mentioned it, um, was the father-son relationship, how um, there's an amazing quote here, and I love the quotes that come through the screen that uh, start every, you know, 15 minutes. Sacrificing your happiness for the happiness of the one I love is by far the truest type of love and you know the footage you have of him in the bedroom Mm -hmm. with his dad coming in when he wakes up and how he has to bring the food in there and you know using the restroom brushing the teeth and it's just it's so beautiful how you know it's his son he's got to take care of him and you know he could have hired somebody or had to go live somewhere or something i don't know i just i really you know maybe it's because my dad's dead but i mean Just an incredible story. And I mean, if you don't know Jesse, the life Rolls on Foundation, I had played in a poker tournament at Killer Shrimp Mm -hmm. in MDR. I knew Brandon Jenner and Leah Felder. And um, because I I come from the music world and they had invited me to this poker tournament because I was a big gambler. And you know, it's fake gambling. But um, and just hearing about it and you know, the room's filled with celebrities and um, it's just, I feel like I had told you in a text, this needs to be played in rehabs. And, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously Jesse does this thing going to schools and universities and telling his story and it's so motivating, but I mean, this film should be everywhere and um, you're doing a narration of it now. Jesse's narrating the film. Tell tell me about the process. Currently I'm
1: shooting a film about his grandmother who's a three-time Holocaust survivor. Um, We started shooting that right before the pandemic happened. Um, and she's 92 she speaks at the museum of tolerance every monday and she's just an amazing woman and she lives right next door to jesse jesse bought the house next door to jesse so they live real close now literally next door and um george called me about two years ago and said hey i've got this guy here he's been really just helping a lot with the they will surf again um events and he's one of the volunteers." And he's written a script for a movie he wants to talk to you I'm like sure tell him to give me a call no he's right here (laughs) And so he puts me on the phone he goes hey I just want to see if I could talk to you and send you some paperwork about getting the life rights to you and your film and I go well yeah what's it for and he's like well I've written a a narrative script that's based on Jesse's story the movie and Jesse the person I was like oh yeah I'd love to read the script and so I read the script and long story short I'm going to direct the film. We've just um, brought on two producers, a line producer, and um, we pitched it to Bob Hurley. Um, and Bob's who
0: owns Hurley's yeah, surfboards and he's going to apparel be
1: involved in it. And um, musically, we—I um, don't want to give away too much, but I will say probably one of the biggest bands in the world may actually help do the music
0: for the film i can only imagine because in jesse's story you have jack johnson ben harper the way you used amen (laughs) ben harper's song in that was genius Uh, that's one of my favorite ben harper songs and it brought so much power to that scene um and jesse's you know looking right down the barrel of the camera and you know going in and out of that where he's narrating what's going on i mean it's just oh I'm, i'm reliving it right now it was i I'd, I'd seen it before when it came out, you know what eight years ago now six years ago two thousand nine okay, so eleven years ago roughly yes. um but it's, it's just so powerful in how you how you did it I did you it. oh I appreciate you, you doing it. those are the kind of films that i just you know it's such real life it's so I don't know I, we gotta get this out everywhere <laughs> I, I mean, I really think it would be play so well um
1: well, it's hard because the music writes. Um, licensing, all that stuff. I had to, because I don't know if you saw the credits, but I pretty much take on every credit. <laughs> in the film. So It was just me making it with my family and with Jesse and his dad, um, and they were in it. They were in front of the camera, um, so I had to be the music supervisor. So I had to approach Universal and ASCAP and BMI and all those people for the masters and publishers' mm-hmm. rights. Artists, yeah, use it, no problem. But no all fee, contracted. nothing. They're con- no fee, yeah. but they're contracted. Of course. And so they gave me gratis rights for festivals only, could not do anything on the Internet, could not sell the film. So we've given it away, basically, yeah. just give it away. And um, there have been a there were a couple offers when it went through the festivals and won a lot of awards. And the festivals ran the festival circuit for two yeah, it did years, really Australia, well. here, all over the place and um, would love to mass you know put it out. I've been asked to do a number two because he has twin boys and a wife and yep. um, and there's a whole another dynamic to that. And he's still surfing and Life Goes On is now the biggest adaptive um, organization in the world. There's actually the adaptive <coughs> world championships that has sparked surfing to be in the Olympics. So when you start to follow the, the weave of the thread of Jesse and how he has affected surfing for adaptive people and um, Non-upright people, um, you start to see the power, and and just the encouragement that he's offered to people through just his example. And I never made the film to be a dad's film. It turned into that through the festivals. I would have people come up afterwards. We do a Q and A, and they would say, "Thank you for making that film. I'm a father," and that's that just. Wow. I'm like, but I, I just made it so when people looked in the mirror, and they'd see the film, they'd look in that mirror and and think about what not to take for granted in their own lives. Exactly. That at any time you can lose it. Everybody thought it was a father's film, just like you just said. And it is. It is. But it was never, that was never my intention. Yeah. But he sacked George, his dad, just sacrifices, and still to this day, sacrifices everything for Jesse. And it's absolutely amazing. It's so beautiful. I've never seen a father do that for his son. Not that any father wouldn't. I would for my daughter. But it's, you know... It's crazy when you document it.
0: Well, watching what we're going through, watching that while we're going through this pandemic right now, and what you just said, you know, really realizing what's important in life. And like, you know, this is what this guy has to deal with every single day. And it's like, we complain. We're so overprivileged as Americans. And, you know, we complain about everything about our coffee being wrong, or if our Instagram filter's not working, or the stupid show that's on Netflix. And it's just you know it was almost a rewind to when you filmed it even 10 15 years ago mm. and it was just mm-hmm. a calmer time then my dad was still alive and it was just mm. oh it's so powerful i can't even start talking about it because it's that good it makes me it'll make me cry um Thank but you. ben harper
1: you'll see the narrative one
0: yes oh 100 percent. pretty amazing and ben harper's in there you know and i know uh, ben through matthew betone who's was his photographer for a mm-hmm. long time and he's like, you know, I don't just get on interviews and come do this for anybody. He's like, I love this guy. And look at, you know, how motivated he is. And what's well, that?
1: The scene in the movie that you see, there's two of them. There's one where he's sitting with Pacific Palisades in the ocean behind him, uh-huh. which is just outside of his house. He was still married to Laura Dern then. And then the other scene was at Remack. And it was the first time we shot Jack on stage, Jack Johnson. Uh-huh. And Jack was opening for Ben. Well, now Ben opens for Jack. It's the other way around. <laughs> and we went, and they were playing ball in the gym, Ben and... Yeah, Bubba's it looked like they were in a mate. gym. And I was like, Jess, can we like get some... Because he wanted to go say hi. And uh, he gave us access. And I said, I'd like to ask him some questions for the film. He said, oh, I don't know, let me ask him. And So Jesse did his magic, because he's just a great, smooth talker. And he says, yeah, yeah, man, Jess, anything for you. So he sat down, and I just wasn't getting the right answer. And I'm shooting handheld, I'm standing there, and I'm like, my question was... What does this, why does this guy inspire you so much? Very simple question. But the answer just wasn't like, it didn't have passion behind it. And so I just kept asking it. And it was almost as if I was saying, What's so big about Jesse? Why does that even matter in your life? And eventually I asked that question. It's a defensive almost answer. And that's the fight that's in the film. I love that. A year later, he calls Jess and says, You know, that day Mark asked me that question such an a-hole. Will you see if he'll do the interview again? (laughs) And so then that's why the interview is in front of his place in Pacific Palisades. We spent two hours doing that interview. You should see the raw footage of that interview of Ben Harper talking about how we're we're just little specks of dust in this massive universe and he just goes off. Is just mind-blowing. I've watched it recently because I've been going through the footage and I'm just like, you start looking at all these little pieces that ultimately became the 74 minutes, and how it transpired over eight years, and just the access—the access to Christopher Reeve. Yes. Seeing Christopher Reeve was like going to see the president. There was so much like security. That's know, how it looked in there. Hallways. I noticed that. And it was insane.
0: How? Well, let's t- touch down on that real quick. Because Christopher Reeve and Jesse meet up, and they have a conversation about uh, spinal cord injury. And I mean, Christopher Reeves in this big suite. Were you in a hotel? Obviously, yeah. What hotel?
1: It was um,
0: in L.A. No, San Diego. It
1: was down in Salt Creek. Okay. Down in um, like Dana Point. But it looked like he
0: had all these handlers, and obviously, he's you know a paraplegic, so he needs people helping him. But he had security there, and there's like like you guys had been brought in just for this period. Why?
1: Well, it was kind of a step and repeat. With okay. Chris, there were other people there <laughs> seeing him. I think it was like three or four other people. Gotcha. And jesse was the last one to go in and there's 12 he had people jesse in the room when jesse was in the hospital when jesse first got injured. yeah and he mentioned already that. been injured and so um jesse had to remind him of that mm-hmm. which is understandable sure. i can't imagine how it came to him seen, but it did come to him and and if you watch it if you've you've seen it a few times but you see jesse work it you see him work life goes on because he says to Chris before yeah. he leaves, you know, sound life goes on, right? He goes, yeah, life rolls on. That was so great. You and that whole thing literally is one roll for five minutes. They timed the visit. So you only had five minutes. They gave us maybe 30 seconds extra. So all the shots of their feet matching each other, all that stuff was like you had to listen to what was being said and when it would repeat, because Jesse repeats a lot, then I would go in for a tight shot then snap back out. It was it was like so daunting cuz you didn't want to miss anything, but you as an editor, I knew that I had to get all these little inserts to make it cut together.
0: The insert you have of I was just going to say that the insert of you have with the two shoes facing yeah. each other really powerful shot. I was like, yeah. "Oh, that's a good one." Yeah. I you mean, see
1: that stuff and you're just like, you got to shoot it.
0: I'd never would have thought of something like that. The age
1: difference, there's just so much in that. You know, and he's what? on a vent. And Jesse's like doing his thing. It's like crazy.
0: How did you I mean, I don't want to know your financial situation, but let's say someone like me or uh, our camera op over here. And we want to I have a great idea. You know, I meet this prisoner that's been in jail for 40 years for something they didn't do. I want to make a documentary on it. What would you say is the first step to do?
1: Oh, my gosh. Now? Yeah. So crowdfund. Nothing, nothing like that. No. In fact, we were asked. Bob and his financial advisors and marketing department were, because we were in there pitching because we wanted to get financed by Bob. And surf industry is a lo- lot different than it was when I made Jesse's story. It's not as new and big and it's there now, it's part of culture. Um, but he said to us, he said, Why don't you guys just crowdfund this? And I'm like, No, I just, yeah. I don't want to. It's a narrative film, this is a business opportunity. Um, documentaries are passion projects. If it's not a passion project for you, then find one. Don't do it because you just want to do it because it's cool to do a documentary. If you're passionate about it, it will get done. It took eight years of my life, but over those eight years of my life, my daughter got to know Jesse, got to see her dad put something together, saw the the finished product. I don't know what impact that's going to have on her life. I mean, she's 28 now. And she's the mother of two beautiful twin boys I must brag about. Um, But when you start to look at that aspect of it, uh, there was no money. There was no budget on that film. It literally, I did not get paid to make that film. I have not made money off that film. Bob Hurley gave us $8,000 at the very end to help (laughs) us finish the film. And that was it. Everything else was borrowing cameras from Fox when I was in San Diego getting Life Rolls On to buy a camera and a little edit bay to help finish the film, but also continue to do nonprofit videos that help boost Life Rolls On, which we did. We did all their video, I did all their videos through that time, was on their board of directors. And so it's it's just, those things just started to unravel and there weren't anything that I was forcing. I was just present in the moment and just kept shooting. And every time I shot, I mean, we went to Nike headquarters, to the campus in Oregon, and he got this huge award from Nike, of inspirational um, award. And we shot the whole thing. It's not even in the film. Yeah, but I it's like to, to that. have that opportunity, or go to Fiji to Tavarula yes. on Bob Hurley's dime, was like again, I didn't pay for that. Bob did, but he takes all of his department heads on a yearly. Excursion to Tavarua, and they go surf cloud break in restaurants, and so Jesse's like, "You want to go?" I'm like, "Sure," and then he's like, "Hey, so I'm gonna go out to Guadalupe Island dive with the great white Charge. You think it'd be good for the movie?"
0: <laughs> yeah, sure,
1: I'll go. I mean, it was crazy, and it was just those those moments just kept unfurling, you know. And my wife's very patient, and so she was very supportive and saw me edit for hours and hours
0: other than these big moments where you go to a cloud break over in Fiji and you know uh, swimming with the sharks when would you decide to film with him when he would call you up he's doing something or would you shoot on the weekends once a month did you guys have like a set day well, if
1: Jesse had his way he I would have shot every stitch of his life um, that's just Jesse um, but No, I had to filter things. You know, his first night by the ocean, which is now a huge event. I mean, Chris Martin goes. There's all these, you know, Jason Raz is the MC now. Jason was in his wedding. I mean, you know, it's like they're best buds. Um, It's back then, it was like the first night by the ocean Ziggy Marley was there and Jim Carrey was there. There were all these celebrities there and I'm there shooting. But I helped do the event with Jesse. I brought in the gambling, the, the, you know, we did a silent auction thing where mm-hmm. you could win stuff playing craps, not money, but prizes. And so it was like all those little things just worked into moments that were like, well, I could shoot a little bit of this. That would work. And then they would, next day we'd be on a plane to Fiji. Or the next day we'd be in Oceanside doing a pop up tent. Or it'd be at the U.S. Open.
0: How does your wife react to that when you're like, okay, I'm going to Fiji now? She would well, come with she
1: you? She knew that I was passionate. She knew I was passionate about it and she supported it. And um, at the end of the day, um, I think it's a, a movie that has impacted a lot of lives, like Jesse has. But again, it's not really the movie. It's Jesse, you know, just yeah, telling a story in 74 minutes. He's
0: Being from Chicago, the big movie I would compare to it that had an effect on me was like Rudy. And his whole geez. story was not even real. But I mean, that's what I get from this film. Wow. We got to get this that's out here somehow. I mean, yeah, well, knowing Rudy Rudiger and his story oh, and how yeah. he's an alky and, you know, it's uh, a lot of it's built up. My grandma's in that movie, actually, too. Oh, but, wow. um, you know, that's what I get. That's the kind of feeling I yeah. have when you watch yeah. something like this. And that's the kind of material I want to start doing. You know, it evokes emotion, but real emotion, compassion mm. uh, for people. And that's why I wanted to talk to you. You know, I had seen it, and then I've, you know, we're Instagram pals or whatever on that stuff. And I knew you rode bikes. And I just, uh, I really appreciate you coming in here today. And, um you know it worked out great since we're in a pandemic and you're not shooting something <laughs> or on location um uh so i just want to touch down on your uh, production company zisix films mm. uh, if you've ever drove from los los angeles to las vegas you've passed zisix road and there's a cool meaning behind that with your grandma, because she would take you to the Springs back there or something, right? No. Okay. we just,
1: <laughs> just drive by the exit, and I, as a kid, I would always say... But you were with your grandma, right? Yeah, we were okay. on our way to summer vacation in California, because I was in Vegas, yeah. and um, they primarily raised me, for the most part. And um, we drive by the sign, and I'd always ask her, how do you say that? And she never got sick of me asking, and she'd always say it. And um, so as a tribute to her, I named my company after that road, and... I just knew down deep that it was the last thing on a rolodex, so it was easy to find, in a, you know, on, a, on the old rolodex yeah, or in, genius. You just go to Z. Um, and then the story behind that road too—not just that my grandmother would teach me how to say it as a kid, but there's a whole secondary story to Zizek's Road because everybody always asks, you know, well, what's down that road? There's a whole hot springs, yeah, like Cal State U, like research department that, that's there, and if. You're a citizen of California. You can go and stay there. There's still oh, a hotel wow. there. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you're just like, wow. So I think that, and I have probably three or 400 pictures that people send me. Every time they drive by it, they take a picture of it and text it to me. And so I've saved all of them. It's pretty crazy. Have you
0: ever cycled from L.A. to no. Vegas? <laughs> no. Dan Bilzerian did it. Good for me. <laughs> Um, yeah. Wow. I want to do a documentary on you. I mean, I, I could just sit here and talk with you literally for four hours, just about Las Vegas. Uh, very inspiring. A lot more. <laughs> Let's uh, just wrap up with a few other things. What would be the complete high that you've had? Uh, you know, the top pinnacle moment of being a filmmaker at any job from a PA to the top director spot. What's the point where you've just really felt like this is where I'm supposed to be. Thank God. I love this. This is great. Was it, you know, when you finished Jesse's story, was it working on Bonaduce? What what's been the real high in your career or is it just a continuous wave?
1: Yeah, I'd have to say it's a continuous wave. Yeah. I just, um, you know, you it's know, for some, my, of... my wife and I, we, we, uh, I don't want to say I'm religious, but I do believe in God quite mm-hmm. heavily, and I do a lot of work with my church. I'm a missionary. I lead teams to Africa every year to Spatini, which is uh, the worst in the world for AIDS, um, HIV, AIDS. And there's 300,000 orphans that we're providing for and building a community there. And it's not one of those things where it's like, oh, you know, celebrity director. I'm not a celebrity director. I'm nothing. It's just my heart just felt compassion for them. I went there. And was introduced by somebody that was on a show I did called Football Wives. And she and her husband, ex-football wife or ex-football player, were putting posts, fence posts, in a care point. And it just, I stepped foot on the ground and it was over. I was, just fell in love with the place. She's gone now. She's moved on to other stuff. And I stayed. And now we have a whole community that's providing for this very impoverished area. Wow. So I think, if anything, it's like those moments when you stand there and you're just like, wow how did I get here? You know, you realize that it's, it's never ending. It is a constant wave. It's a great way to put it because I think anytime things stop enough to where you really go, oh, okay, that's why I'm where I'm at or oh, that's it. It's like, I'm never going to retire. We're not in a business where you really yes. want to retire because we're storytellers. But everybody's a storyteller too. Mm-hmm. I don't take that away from anybody. And so for me, it's just like, I don't know what's next. I know that this pandemic has created a whole new surge on streaming. I'm the streaming guy now, and people are coming to me and saying, how do you do this, how do you do that? Bit rates and just everything, what cameras, what lighting to use, and so that's, it's almost like a job security thing in a way, but it's coming up with new and entertaining ways to tell stories, you know, and.
0: It's just, I'm hooked now, you know, it's the two years I switched from music into film, and I'm just like, you know, you ask anybody. I don't even. I don't go out. Even when I'm done with the editing projects I'm getting hired for right now, I continue to edit my own stuff. I'm just. I'm yeah. so engulfed in it right now. I'm always filming down at the beach. We're so lucky to live where we do here in <laughs> Hermosa, and I can go up to Palos Verdes, and it's. You know, it's like you're in Hawaii. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's. Uh, it's. It's a good life. It's a different different way of living now, and I just love. Um, Storytelling, you know, it's. I thought music was great, how that evoked emotion, but film is even a higher caliber for me. Don't ever lose your taste for music. Oh, never mind. Because music's
1: what drove Jesse's story. That whole, that's a music film. That music drove every aspect with those quotes that you're speaking of. And then there's Jesse and his dad. I've I've always looked at it that way because music has driven everything that I've ever done. When I was doing news, I didn't put music, as Jack says, the people that died on the news tonight i would use music in special projects pieces and and general news and just never spot news fires accidents that it's just that's just not respectful yeah um but it was always a cinematic thing for me and and like when i cut i don't start with all the sound bites and b-roll i start with what music am i to use because it's an emotion that's driven in me even when I'm shooting, sometimes I shoot with music playing and it just affects how I see things visually. So it's it's completely different than what most people do. Most people just drop things in a timeline, move everything and then lay the music. Yeah. I'm actually cutting to the the rise and falls of beats and all that.
0: So. Exactly what I do as well. Good. I, everything I do is don't lose that. When I'm riding on my bike I put my yeah, camera exactly. horizontal and I see a shot first. Real I'll, quick story. Go ahead.
1: So I'm dating my wife. We come to Newport. I'm listening to the casino soundtrack in my news vehicle. And it just hits me. And we're at the we're at the pier in Newport Beach. And I just park. And I go, don't think I'm crazy. It's like our fifth date. <laughs> don't think I'm nuts. I just want you to listen to this music. I'm going to turn it up. And I just want you to watch all the people walking around. And just put it to the music. And she looked at me like I was like, really? I'm going to go on another date with this guy? And we sat there and she flipped out. She couldn't believe the experience.
0: That's awesome. And I go,
1: I live, I told her, I said, so you know, that's how I live all day long, every day. I just try to put music to what is happening all the time. And so when I have the opportunity to go out and actually shoot something, and then come back and pick the music, and then cut it, and it has has rises and falls and emotional, I mean, it's just, yeah, totally exciting.
0: That's poetic. Daniel Pemberton, do you know Mm -hmm. him? Mm -hmm. I've been using his scores in my little cycling edits for branded content for my, (laughs) and it's just so powerful. That guy's a badass. He's a composer for film. And um, I can't tell you how much I appreciate uh, you coming in, spending a few hours with us. You know, what would be a camera that you would advise film students that you're a fan of right now? We got the Sony FS5, which is a great documentary camera. Uh, what's something that you started off on? Well, I guess the technology's <laughs> changed. Do you really want to go that far? <laughs> um, but I mean, 1000 bucks. What would you recommend for someone to a thousand get into? $1,000. It
1: depends on if you want to go mirrorless DSLR or you want to you
0: mirrorless. Know. Mirrorless is uh, the wave of the, the future. I
1: think, I think the Canon cameras are really good, 60D, 70Ds. Um, if you can afford a mark. mark uh, Mark IV, 5D Mark IV. Mm-hmm. Um, Would you get it? I'm shooting with an A7S II. Those are best. I'm getting everything out of it, but I also have a lot of the true It's blown.
0: got the low light on that, right? So you can and thirty-two
1: thousand ISO. Take
0: on. it down for the bioluminescent I of it. I already did. I love it. Yeah. What uh, and then a good lens to start off? Uh, a zoom lens or a prime?
1: Both. Okay, have them 35 both. mil, um, and then zoom lens, 70, to, you know, 7200 Canon.
0: Two point eight. Thank you. I love that. That was partly for me. <laughs> the film is Jesse's story. Mark has worked on over what five hundred projects, probably more. Uh, Fifty-six
1: television series. Fifty-six television too series. Many new, too many documentaries. music
0: videos. Yep. Yeah. Music videos. Commercials. Uh, his production company is called Zissix Films. Is that com? Yep. And you could, if you need to reach out for Mark to hire him. Um, <laughs> We're going to give him a Cycle God shirt, so let's lower the lights, bring the priest out, and uh, <laughs> anoint you a Cycle God. Mr. Jacobs, I appreciate it so much, sir. Have a great night, and thank you. Thank
1: you. I appreciate it.
0: And the dawn Amen, oh man. Will I see your face?
2: I find a place within to live
0: my life when